Hello, everybody. We are back from holiday. Back in business. Back in business. That is Susie Lyon. I am Don Delco. This is the Swiss Pats Podcast. It's good to be back behind the mic. Yeah, I never really let you get that intro out, do I? That's okay. You're eager to talk. Eager. Eager. I've I've missed us. Everybody's eager to listen to us. They tune in to listen to you anyhow. They don't listen to me. Yeah. It's true. But this week, it's... uh, You'll be tuning in to listen to our guest. Uh, very exciting. We had Sue Style of Swiss. She's an author. Yeah. She wrote a book, The Landscape of Swiss Wine, A Wine Lover's Tour of Switzerland. She didn't just write a book. She's written a bunch of books. Awesome amount of books. And we talked about some of them, but we also talked about the Swiss wine one. And we talked food and we talked wine. It was it was an excellent conversation. So that'll be coming up in a little bit. Uh, but first, I want to, uh, it's been a while since we've had one of these podcasts, so I wanted to uh, kind of talk about what's going on. Yeah. And uh, I really want to talk about it because I think this is going to trigger Susie. So oh, I'm excited. You like to trigger me. Yeah. So here is something that actually I've learned. Uh, I think it was from you and mm-hmm. another one of our friends that I didn't know. There's something called a pink tax. Oh yeah, there is. Mm-hmm. Would you explain to everybody what the pink tax is? The pink tax is when an item is sold to, and it's advertised towards women and it has a more expensive price tag, even though it's the same product as the male version, but it might be a different color or a different, like um, it's advertised differently and it's sold for more money, but it's an identical product. Yes. So I will give you uh, also some other examples. Uh, according to the story on SwissInfo.ch, women in Switzerland who buy clothes from abroad or menstruate pay a higher tax rate than men who wear imported clothing or take pills to treat erectile dysfunction. I believe it. So these are a couple examples of your another example of your Swiss tax, but um, this is basically why it exists. So the reason for the discrepancy is that Swiss clothing tariffs are based on weight. Oh. And historically, women's clothing was lighter than men's, yet often more expensive. Right. So shouldn't it be cheaper? I know, right? And Uh, we don't have pockets in our clothing. You guys get really excited when you get a dress with pockets. What is that? Do you know what? My husband found out recently that our clothes don't have pockets, and it blew his mind. He is a 40-year-old man and had no idea that women's clothing rarely has pockets. And the reason it happened was he was frustrated at at my kids about something. They were carrying something small. And he was like, just put it in your pocket. And all three of us in unison went, we don't have any pockets. And he was like, you do, I can see them. And then we all (laughs) showed the example that on each pair of our trousers, the pockets were fake. And he couldn't believe it. He was like, what? What's the point? And we were like, we know. That's wild because even my five-year-old has a dress that she likes to wear and it has pockets and she is thrilled by this. Yeah. It's awesome when you have a dress with pockets. It's honestly, if you tell a woman that you like her dress and it has pockets, it's the first thing she'll say. It It is. Yeah. Yeah. And you put your hands in it and like. And like show it. Yeah. And you swish a little and you're like, it has pockets. Yeah. It's so strange. So, you know, you'd think, I mean, I'd pay more for pockets. I would. 
but it sounds like we're paying more for nothing, for less. Yeah, it's a federally sanctioned. Uh, here's a federally sanctioned example of this of the pink tax. The tariff for women's wear imported into Switzerland is higher than that for men's wear, five percent versus three percent, on the top value of the clothing. Retailers factor this into their prices, which results in women who already earn less than men on average paying more for attire. Hmm. Interesting. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But you see it in supermarkets, like just on the shelf, you'll have like razors. One will be pink with flowers on it. And one will be blue with, I don't know, lightning strikes on it. <laughs> and the men's one will be <laughs> six francs cheaper. Exactly. And there's no reason. There's no. absolutely no reason at all. Lightning strikes are pretty cool. That, that's true. I mean, I'd that's go it. for that one. Yeah. Uh, so there is a, there's a bill to abolish industrial tariffs currently being drafted. Uh, eliminate the unequal treatment between men and women's clothing. Um, and it's, uh, the, the, the other interesting thing too is, is things like women's sanitary supplies do not qualify for the, um, discounted rate of 2.5%, which was put into place in 2008 when it comes to the value added tax. It's the same in Australia and England. It's like, why, why, why are we taxed for something we have no choice about? Kenya did away with the tampon tax in 2004. India did last year. Australia, as well as 11 U.S. states, joined them. Oh, really? I didn't know that Australia had already. Britain, meanwhile, charges 5% VAT compared with the 20% charged on other goods. Yeah, still too much. That's just so strange. Get in line, UK. There's, there's, they have a picture of the razors you're talking about. Yeah. Um, <laughs> listen to this. A men's three-blade razor refill goes for three francs, 24 rappens, while the women's equivalent cost four francs, 98. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Overall, women's shaving tools cost 8 to 54% more than men's. See, this is why I thought it was weird, because my wife uses the same razor um to shave her beard <laughs> she does no she has she uses the same razor i use yeah. right like the actual same one or just the same brand just the same brand <laughs> like we have two of the same brand razors and then we have all the same men's razor blades yeah it's not necessary to have the women's one no it's not but it's that whole but like there's um, a, it's like venus and there's like and the ads and stuff yeah. you know what, what's all that called like it's like it's just it's trickery. They've tricked us for years and years. We've all fallen into it. It is. So listen to this. There's a, there's a hairdresser in Lausanne mm-hmm. who has introduced same prices for men and women. Oh, this happened a few years ago, didn't it? Yeah. But they, they're not charging the men's price for women. They're charging the women's price for men's, right? So the salon owner updated his prices in February after a client asked why her boyfriend had to pay 20 francs less for a haircut. He really was unable to come up to a reason, so he decided to treat his customers equally. This is the thing with this, and I'm not sure that the pink tax applies to hairdressing. You have to go to a different school, right? I mean, I could be wrong. This is a hashtag CZ fact. <laughs> to cut men's hair. You're a barber if you cut men's hair. You're a hairdresser if you cut women's hair, right? I mean, I think, I think you just a, learn how to cut hair. I think no, it's universal, I think, a, no? I think there's a difference. Cutting men's hair, I don't think it's easy. I mean, I've seen some pretty bad men's haircuts. <laughs> Why are you looking at me? 
I mean... Why are you looking at me, Susie? You've got a hat on. I can't even see your, your yeah. hair that you're hiding. <laughs> How convenient. But I do think that it's a different education. I could okay. be wrong. Maybe the hairdressers in, in a Swiss Pats world could, uh, could could confirm or deny that, that fact. Um, but yeah, but if, you, if you're... It, I understand why women's haircuts are more expensive. You guys have all kinds of stuff going on. There's foils, there's dryers. Women's, there's... Sometimes women's hair sh- should be cheaper than men's. I, I do think that, I mean, sometimes you're just cutting straight across the bottom. Nothing needs to be done. That's it? That's it, yeah. That doesn't happen with men's haircuts. Yeah, but then you add in all the fancy stuff. I don't. I hate the hairdressers. I don't add any fancy th- things in. No? no? You don't like going to get your hair did? No, they try to talk to you. You've got to stare at yourself in the mirror. You look like a drowned rat with your hair all wet. No, not for no. me. You got to lay on that thing while they wash your hair. Mm-mm, not for me. Oh man, I love going to the barber. I know, I'm you should go minority. to my barber. No, I'll be right. You get... I don't want a haircut like yours. <laughs> <laughs> you can get your beard trimmed. It's yeah. fantastic. Have a beer. Yeah. No, I'll be. It's right. a good time. I'll I'll continue to not go to the hairdressers. Okay, that will be my. So my how do you cut? Who cuts your hair? Um, no one. <laughs> well, you've gotten your hair cut since I've known you. What happened? Yeah. I, I go to the hairdressers and I dread every moment of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I spend you... like six months looking for a hairdresser. I always regret it. <laughs> every uh, time. Okay. Because you're not like your friend who cuts her hair by herself, right? I do not cut my... I will never cut my own hair. That's terrible. I will never cut my own hair. I will never cut my children's hair. Mm, never yeah. happening. If, if it's for you, then that's fine. But it's not for <laughs> me. No, thank you. I'll pay the pink tax. Yeah, right. Well, I want to get to our interview uh, with Sue Style, who is a author, food expert. I think she's kind of a chef-ist, like a home chef. Yeah, she uh, does cooking does classes at home. Anyway, she wrote a book called The Landscape of Swiss Wine, A Wine Lover's Tour of Switzerland. It's a fantastic book. Looking at now those beautiful pictures, and we talked to Sue about that, as well as many other things food-wise. So here is Sue Style. And joining us today, we've got Sue Style. Welcome, Sue. She is an author and food and wine writer. So thank you, Sue, for joining Swiss Pats to tell us about, well, you've got a new book, so you're going to tell us about that, but also about your pretty awesome journey to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's start at the beginning because you, um, I mean, how long have you been here in, in Europe? Well, I know, hold on, you're British, so you've been in Europe your whole life, I'm assuming. Um, well, you might find some Brits would quarrel with that yeah. <laughs> definition of well, Europe, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I lived, I first came to Switzerland in 1973 and we were here for a couple of years. Then my husband's job took us to Mexico and we were there for about, uh, seven years and then we came back to Switzerland f- kind of for good in 81 82 I think it was you might be the uh the the longest serving expat on Swiss Pats <laughs> oh god there We've... are there are others who've been here longer and actually I have to say I lived in Switzerland I lived in Basel for about 10 years and then in 91 we moved just across the border we're very close to, to Basel we're in Alsace now in France but um I still have 
I still have a foot in both camps. <laughs> so you, Basel is our city because yeah, it's so close. It is so close to the Alsace. And yeah. uh, was that, uh, you know, um, a conscious like you wanted to be in France or you wanted to be around the the food and wine in the Alsace, or was there a, a different all, reason? All of the above. And we we love France. We we both speak good French and and love that. I mean, we're okay with German as well and, and dialect, but. Um, yeah, I love I love being in France, and I've, as you probably know, written a couple of books also about the food and wines of Alsace. So yeah, actually, um, it's interesting when I was looking up about you, Sue. Uh, you have written nine books. Mm-hmm. Ten now. Is, this is number ten. This is number ten. <laughs> this is there's so many books, and uh, the first one, or you tell me if I'm wrong, but the one I I found first on your website is the Mexican cookbook. That was the first. Yeah. So take well, us back to then. I mean, what, what? Well, that was when we came back from Mexico to Basel in eighty. Uh, one or two, having lived there for seven years, and uh, they, it's just such a wonderful cuisine, and, and pretty much misunderstood, or not, yeah, misunderstood, but not very well known in Europe. Much less well known than it is in the States, let's say, for obvious reasons, geographical reasons. And so I thought well, this would be a wonderful opportunity to write a book that about real Mexican food, because my experience had been with real Mexican food, not with Tex-Mex or, or any of the other interpretations that there are so that was the, that was the first one so i i didn't have my first taco until i was in my 20s okay <laughs> and I, I was in the states i grew up in the states mm-hmm. but it was like this just magical thing and it wasn't a taco bell taco it was a proper it taco it was a real thing it was a real yeah. taco and it just blew my mind ever since i've just been obsessed with mexican food it's, it's fantastic it? yeah and then we moved to Basel, mm. and you know the conversations. Obviously, everybody asks, "Oh, how's it going in Basel? What do you miss? What do you miss?" Mm. And I'm like, "It's Mexican food." Yeah, yeah. You have know? you discovered anywhere recently? I have discovered somewhere recently Good. here in Basel. I want some tips. <laughs> it is fantastic. I will give them a shout out here because I love them so much. It's called Cartel. Okay, it's in That's Basel. New to me. Are they fairly new? They're they fairly new. Yeah. The guacamole is incredible the tacos are really good Mm -hmm. it is the first time and and we actually then we ate there this summer then we went back to states for three weeks and we didn't have a desire to eat mexican because we just had such a good mexican meal here it really was that good so i highly recommend it but have you with writing this mexican cookbook but living over here in europe have you been able to kind of open some people's eyes to that cuisine a bit definitely more? definitely yeah and i um, apart from the book i've i've um, I, I do workshops at home um, teaching wild mexican cooking as well as you know many other kinds um so that was another way to to get people into it and then um, there's a great shop called el sol which we could do a little shout out for not too far from where your studio is um, where they have really good, various different raw materials, maybe you know it, and they have really good corn tortillas, Ooh. which are quite hard to find. Yeah. <laughs> Not the old El Paso kind, but really, they're, they're homemade and they're really good. So, but nah. they just have all the raw ingredients. I have to put them together and make something, they which is the problem. They have right, the right materials. Yeah, yeah, that's, really yeah great. that's the problem. So, okay, so Mexico, Switzerland, uh, France. Uh, I want I want to get to your first experience here in Switzerland uh, in the 70s, being an English speaker, coming not having a, a Google Translate on your phone. <laughs> That's right. Uh, what uh, What was that experience like then? Back uh, Back it in the 70s, it was great. It was great. We were We were early married. We didn't have children at the time. My daughter was born here quite soon afterwards, um, and that was actually quite a short uh, spell here. We were like a year and a half before we went to Mexico. 
but it was great. I, I, I like Basel. It's, it's, uh, it's a nice size. It's an international city. Uh, I like the way we've got the three countries all on one in one. Uh, we've got the three borders here, and, and um, I, I felt pretty much at home. Did you? So when we came back after seven years in Mexico, it felt like al- almost like coming home again. <laughs> um, what, what was, I mean, is it really normal for any of us to be expats? Not really, I guess. It's like probably changed though from the 70s it's maybe a little bit more accepted yeah what was it like you know back then when you know you were newly married and uh, you know going to have a baby and you told family and friends like oh I'm going to Switzerland and you know possibly I don't know when I'll be home yeah did that go down well and that was if you I'm sure you will know possibly not remember but know that in those days I mean there were no low-cost flights it actually cost quite a bit yeah to get back to the UK for yeah it wasn't jumping on easy jet definitely not so that that was a bit different um and all the sort of um services like you guys offer for instance and the international school was very small then it was a primary school it had I don't know like 36 kids <laughs> and now goodness knows they've got like 1500 and there's a whole network of things that go on around the international school so that's very different I would say the expat experience from the early 70s to now is is transformed um, different not necessarily better I mean better if you really are not comfortable with traveling and don't know your way around perhaps don't know the language but um it's certainly very different and how about your um your family were were they kind did they accept this as as a part of your life had had it always been kind of in your blood like i'm a traveler i'm gonna it had it had because i i went to madrid university after after school so i was already kind of spreading my wings a bit and and my family are very well traveled and they they loved to come and see us here, as they did also when we were in Mexico. And yeah, they were cool with that. That's good. Mm. I think sometimes it can be the hardest on on family where they they can't really get on board with why someone would leave their home. Especially perhaps for you, because I I think you're from Australia, and that's very different. It's a long way away. Yeah, <laughs> you know, England is is a doddle, really, isn't it? Well, I was going to ask you about distance because. You know, I lived in the UK for a really long time, but I don't actually get back there that often. And even though it is super close, you know, it's only an hour and a half, I I don't find that the it, the distance makes it any easier to get there. Did you ever find like it's hard to get, you know, back? Like life just kind of takes over when you when you live somewhere else, doesn't it? Yeah, and then you have that difficult thing, don't you, where you end up thinking, well, actually, where do I belong? Right. Because you go back, in quotes, to where it is that you came from. And you find that that back is no longer what you remember. Yeah, it's <laughs> almost like you're... They're different and you're different. and uh, It's it's kind of tricky, isn't it? It, is, it can be mm. really tricky. So it sounds like you are super well-traveled. You said you, you lived in Madrid. You've also lived in Mexico and, uh, and Europe. I'm guessing that the languages come hand in hand with that. I love languages and they come easily to me. <laughs> oh, you're so it's very, lucky. It's a real advantage and a real, uh, it's a joy. I mean, I just love, uh, yeah, it's not a problem. Because for me, um, I find that I'm not forced to speak German that often. And I, I, I feel like that that is the probably the biggest negative about the differences when you became an expat 
to when we did like we're not forced to because English has become the norm it's true it's true and people in Switzerland are so good at languages aren't they and they speak English very well almost without exception doesn't matter whether you're in a shop or whether you're in a you know medical context or whatever they seem to me to be very good at English and they love to practice English and don't you think there's also another complicating factor and that is that you come here you probably learn German try to learn German, take classes and and so on. And then you go out into the street and you discover that actually people don't want to speak German, they want to speak dialect. (laughs) So that's quite a problem. It's this funny kind of schizophrenic thing. Um, It is because you go out and you try and practice that German you you just learned and it's either they don't want to speak it and they hear the accent so they come back to you in English because they want to practice their English sure and they're good at it (laughs) but yeah they're so good at it did you find that the case in 1973 that they were quite daunting can't it yeah were they good in English back then or has it changed that much yes and but I I have to say I did go go I went into first of all I, I had a bit of German high German and then I went and did a, a course in dialect, which started out from the premise that you already knew a bit of German, which is probably the best way to do it. Um, and that was great. That was a big advantage. But um, you, you've got to use it then, haven't you? You've got to practice. And you got to, yeah. <laughs> so where did the, you got the love of languages, where did the love of food and wine <laughs> begin and come from? I guess from my family um, up in Yorkshire, <laughs> which sounds in a way quite funny because I don't know how well you know Yorkshire, but you know it's a f- it's famously beautiful and rural. Um, there's not, pudding, not correct? Spe- there's Yorkshire pudding, there's which pudding. is not really a pudding at all. No, it's, not. <laughs> it's, so good. it's wonderful. It's really good. Um, so yeah, not especially known for adventurous food, let's say. Um, so, but my parents were well travelled. They loved to go to new places and explore, and, and they loved to eat. <laughs> uh, and they had, you know, they had their own chickens and, and all that kind of stuff. So we we grew up with with really good raw materials uh, at our at our disposal. And my mum loved to cook. She was a great cook, and my dad loved to eat. <laughs> so it was a good combination. All right, I got to get into this. You had chickens, so who got the chickens from outside to inside? <laughs> And from night. inside to oh, the oven. To keep away the foxes, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I did a bit of that myself. <laughs> but that, that thing of going to the hen house and finding in the laying box uh, in the straw a newly laid egg is, is just such a wonderful memory still. It's like nowadays when I go and find mushrooms in the fields where I live. <laughs> it's just so exciting. <laughs> so the... Um, it, it began early, um, and and I do wanted to get into obviously the Swiss food because, as someone coming from America who was kind of into the the foodie scene and stuff, and coming to Switzerland, it was it's been a bit of an adjustment f- for me. Um, but I guess, especially with your book, the landscape of Swiss wine, and and the other things you've you've written about. Um, what were your first experiences with the Swiss food and the Swiss food culture and the wine culture when you came here? Because living in Spain and France, I mean, that's the wine culture is really good there. Mm-hmm. So what was that like coming here? 
Well, on Swiss food, I think the first thing to say is that, of course, as you know, there isn't really something called, in quotes, Swiss food. There's lots of different regions. There are the four main language uh, uh, regions, well, three and, and a tiny one. Um, and, and each one of those regions has, has a very distinct food and wine culture. Um, the way they eat, the times of day they eat, the kinds of things that they eat, they, they are different. Um, so that was an interesting discovery. And actually, the first book I wrote long, long before uh, The Landscape of Swiss Wine was, was called A Taste of Switzerland. And that was published originally in the UK and the US. But then it was taken on by the same people who've done the wine book by Bergli in Basel. And um, they kept it um, in print for many, many years. I mean, it originally came out in the 90s, like 90 two or three, and it was in print until only about two years ago. So, and that, that takes a romp through all the good things, and there are many, <laughs> to eat and drink throughout Switzerland. And each chapter is devoted to, you know, one of them is devoted to bread. Swiss, Swiss bread's wonderful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, bread, there's one on sausages, of course. Um, there's one on wine, of course. Um, so so it, it, it approaches it like that, and, and um, within each uh, region, which each canton, I go a bit into the, the different specialities that there are. Oh, wow, so you really dive into it. So what's, yeah. what's some of your favorite uh, uh, food from the, the cantons throughout this country? Hmm, golly, that's difficult. I, I do love that wonderful dish of veal, diced veal in a cream sauce with mushrooms, kushnetzeltes. Okay. Which they always serve with roshti. And a good roshti is so good, isn't it? Yes. And they're not always good, are they? No. Because it really shouldn't be just a sort of soggy hash brown thing. It's got to have that wonderful crust, mm. <laughs> uh, both sides. And uh, yeah. I think that's a part of the problem with Swiss food is that it's very easy to not have a great meal. And that definitely happened to me when I first came to Switzerland. Mm. You mean when you're eating out? Yeah, yeah, when you're eating out and you think, oh, you know, I'll have, um, you know, the rosti yeah. or the, you know, something that you think, oh, yeah, this will be good because it's Swiss and I'm in Switzerland and then it's not that good. So it's about it's finding, it's you know, I, I guess I, I always think back to when I first got here and I think, well, the terrible meals I ate and then never trying them again. So there's probably meals like that one that you mentioned puts you off, doesn't that, it? that yeah. I should try again. Yeah. It is worth, worth doing. And the same with wines, because when I first came here, for, if you like, for good in the 80s, in the early 80s, the wine scene was very different then. And it was just at the time, and I go into this a bit in my book in the introduction, it was just at the time, up until then, um, Swiss wine growing had been heavily subsidized by the state. And that meant that people had not really much winemakers hadn't got much incentive to go for quality because they knew that whatever they produced in whatever quantity, and there were huge quantities, especially of Chasselin, whatever they produced, the state would mop up in the end if they didn't find a market for it. So anyway, in the 80s, that all changed, mid-80s, and they removed those um, subsidies. And at the same time, and this was really very tough on the on the winemakers they also opened the borders to imported wines because up until then it was a very closed shop wonderfully protected <laughs> so you know on the one hand they could produce tons and tons of stuff or rather oceans of stuff that was not very distinguished let's be honest and on the other hand they were protected against um, foreign imports of course now if you go to any wine shop 
there are just as many, well, more, actually, wines from Spain, France, Italy, a few from the States, even a few from Australia, right? Yeah. Um, whereas then it was very dominated by, by Swiss. So that whole wine scene has changed unbelievably. It's interesting <clears throat> because when I first got here, there was one of the first things I did when I got here was, was the um, wine shift in Basel. Oh, that's a great event. And that is yeah. Swiss wine only. That's right. So that is obviously people who have decided to, okay, we're going to make quality wines. Mm-hmm. And um, I discovered some, some great wines there. And some of them are in my book, some of the producers. That's a super thing. And you know there are several V-shifts yes, around the Yeah, t- the, so I've only been to the Basel one, but they, hmm. but they do. They go to Lucerne and a bunch of That's other places right. as well. And that is Excellent. such a – anyone yeah. that has come to Switzerland, I tell that's what they should do. Good. Because that is a really fun event. Also yeah. cheap because yeah. we all know Switzerland yeah. is expensive. Yeah, well, that is always an element, isn't it? But, um, yeah, no, it's good to V-shift. You know, looking at this book, I, I know there's a lot of good wine regions. You have you have Tuscany, you have Napa Valley, you have all the areas in France. But I'm telling you, the photos you have in this book, you can't tell me there isn't a more beautiful setting for vineyards than in Switzerland. Know, I'm sorry, like it's you just, just can't beat it. Lakes it? and mountains and yeah. hills. I mean, it's just it's the best. I mean, if you you get on a train. And go a bit south, well, actually, even just around here and close to us in Basel. But the really dramatic ones are the valley um, yes. and, and yeah. anywhere around Lake Geneva. And you go trundling along in your train, either alongside Lake Geneva or, or if you do the Glacier Express, for instance, yeah. um, from St. Moritz all the way along the valley, the Rhone Valley, because it is, of course, the upper Rhone Valley. Uh-huh. Um, and you just look out of the train window and you think, how can anyone... I've had the idea of planting yeah. vines here, not to mention harvesting the grapes. I mean, it's it's, it's just, a steep, there's some, some deep areas that those things are, are planted on. Now, I, a little bit, I kind of want to get a little bit into the, uh, the weeds, so to speak, with the wine. Uh, you mentioned in the 80s there was that shift. So what are, what are some of the styles of wines that have kind of come of that that are quite delicious that kind of match up to wines from France or Spain or uh, Napa Valley or good. even Australia? Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, even Australia? <laughs> good, good, good question. I would say that there are two main um, categories that, that one should look out for. The first are the international, internationally known varieties, and I'm thinking now Pinot Noir, Chardonnay to a, to a small extent, but Pinot Noir for sure, Merlot, um, those sort of grapes, Gamay, which is the Beaujolais grape, which the Swiss are doing really great things with. Um, Pinot Noir, there's some wonderful cool climate Pinot Noirs from up in this northern part of the, of the country. Canton Zurich, did you know they produce wine in Canton Zurich? I did not, I just they <laughs> Actually, Baselland. There are, there's really? A, there's a wonderful chap in, in Mutenz who is producing some very fine Pinot Noir. Um, so that's that's the international internationally known but varieties which have been planted here for quite some while and which they're really doing good things with. The other thing that's that's happened as a result of all these changes in the eighties is that the very hardly known at all varieties, which are in some cases absolutely unique to Switzerland, in the true sense of the word unique, because it's quite an overworked word, isn't it? Um, things, and the Valais is particularly strong on these. Um, things like Petit Arvine, I don't know whether you've met that wine, but that's a gorgeous white wine. 
Um, I have. I have mm, tried that wine. Mm, it is really good. I, I went to a, a wine cellar in in the Valais, mm. and um, I didn't realize at the time that that was such a unique one. Mm. I bought. They had. They actually sold mini bottles, which were awesome because like you could be like oh I'll just have a glass with dinner yeah perfect yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes that they do 50 centiliters half a liter yeah, which is also great between the two of you you know have a cup of glasses brilliant yeah so no. that's one for titalvin's great there's another one called amine with a g in the middle um that produces anything from a dry also white dry white wine to a late harvested naturally sweet one and then from the northern part, there are a couple of interesting grapes. One is called Reuschling, comes from the around um, Lake Zurich. Sounds much better when we're in the French part, though. <laughs> uh, well, I do find French very appealing too, like yes. you. <laughs> and then there's one called Completa. Completa comes from Graubünden, where there's some terrific wine, by the way, and some really world-class Pinot Noir coming out of there. Um, and Completa is worth looking out for. So those are fun, fun grapes, and I think... Don't you think increasingly today people are really interested by and challenged by and want to discover wines that aren't just Chardonnay again? Sure. Everyone got sick of all those over-oaked Chardonnays and it gave rise to the ABC movement. You know about the ABC I movement? I do not, no. Anything but Chardonnay. No. <laughs> <laughs> people got tired of those and, and um, it's, it's fun to have um, access to Chardonnay these. is a gateway wine. It's a gateway wine, and of course, I mean, yeah, we're talking Burgundy, aren't we? And I mean, you yeah, know, you can't get much better than top Burgundy if we could afford it, or if I could afford it. <laughs> but um, there are other things too, and I think that's what makes a journey around the Swiss vineyards so enriching and such fun. Uh, the other question I have about the Swiss vineyards, are they, is it visitor-friendly? Like, are you able to go to these places and, and, and really kind of dive into yeah. the vineyards themselves and the winemakers? Yeah. And all the people I've mentioned, and I, I covered just 50, and I mean, you know, there are, of course, <laughs> many more than 50, but I had to make a selection. And all of them can be visited. I okay. mean, some of them are much more set up for visitors than others, that's clear. But they can all be visited, and it is, especially if they're quite small, it's a good idea to ring in advance to call them. Because, you know, often they're so small that, you know, they might be in the vineyards or they might be in the cellar and it's just not convenient. Yeah. So give them a call first and, and um, set up a meeting. So you visited, I'm assuming, more than 50 uh, places <laughs> for this arrive book. arrive at my 50. Yeah. Right. I, um, I want to know what your cellar looks like. I can't <laughs> I imagine every time you left a vineyard, you left yeah, with a big box of wine. We did. We did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's quite well furnished, although we keep um, <laughs> d- dipping into it. <laughs> Maybe I need to, uh, to start replenishing stocks. But yeah, yeah. And it's but, fun to, to have a a selection isn't it in in your cell if you've got enough room to to keep a little bit of wine it's wonderful to yeah and we especially like if like if we've got friends or family visiting from the uk on the whole they don't know swiss wines because their access to swiss wines is very limited I and mean, as you know that i think it's between one and two percent of swiss wines are exported it's nothing it's absolutely nothing yeah it's not much is it i watched a documentary about wines once international wine collectors and there was a big difference between people who collect wine to drink and people who collect wine to save as an investment as an investment i'm assuming the wines in your cellars are are there to be enjoyed oh they definitely are absolutely (laughs) 
I very rarely bought wine as an investment, and it usually would be Bordeaux, and, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a very small dabbling that I've done, but I, I think it's a shame when wine becomes a sort of collector's item. It's meant, and and I, most winemakers believe that too. They, they're not comfortable with these. Well, they want their wine to be drunk. They're very happy if their wines cost a lot and they make sure. loads of money, but um, they want their wines to be drunk and enjoyed. Yeah. yeah. I want to just move away from the wine for just a minute to ask you about um, all of the things that you do, uh, you know, with your life. Because you don't just do the – you're not just an author. Um, you get involved in magazines and in radio shows and all sorts of things. So is that – you just like to keep yourself busy. You're doing something all the time. That's, that's definitely something that I find a lot of fun, yeah. And on the whole, those things are quite – there's a good synergy between them, uh, like the Radio X, where I do a, uh, the, the English show, I do a regular um, food and wine slot. Um, then I would talk about something that's happening in the food and wine world. Um, the workshops I've slightly put on hold at the moment because I've been so busy with the book. But um, it all kind of, um, it all works together, hangs together, yeah. And about those workshops, so even though you, you, they're a little bit on hold at the moment, you invite people to, you know, cook with you and to, mm. to, to create things. Yes, I mean, yeah, did, I've got is a big just, kitchen. <laughs> it just comes from your desire to, like, cook and just your mm. love for it? Yeah, and, you know, it's really fun. I don't know whether you've had the same experience, but actually I think cooking with people is a lot of fun. Everybody has something to do because it's not a demo, it's a, it's a hands-on thing. And everybody gets in there, rolls up their sleeves. We have a menu which we prepare, and then we eat, of course. <laughs> and with it go wines that are particularly exciting me at the time. So it's a sort of complete picture, really. It's good fun. Are you going to start putting more of those on now that the book is finished? Maybe. Maybe. I'll see. Okay. <laughs> he asked because we want to eat. Uh, we, we want to cook we, we want to eat. <laughs> Perhaps a Mexican food one. I'm just going to throw it out yeah. there. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. Um, so when it comes to the, the foods you've, um, you've tried here in Switzerland, I guess the thing I kind of wrestle with is this country has, it, it might be in this, this might not be exactly right, but per capita, one of the most Michelin star restaurants in the world. There's just a ton of them here. Obviously there's some in the Alsace region as well, but in focusing on Switzerland yet is like, uh, Susie mentioned the, the chance to have not a great meal is a little higher. I feel, uh, why do you see that kind of that, that dichotomy of, of like all these really high end, amazing restaurants, some incredible chefs have come out of here. There's a chef in, New York, uh, that is at the number one restaurant in the world called 11 Madison Park, who is from Switzerland. Uh, but just like a general day-to-day thing, like just sausages mm. and schnitzel, and it's kind of, it doesn't feel more like sustenance, right? I mean, do you kind of see where I'm going with this? Like mm, there's kind of this. I do. I do see where you're going. And you could actually um, level the same criticism at France. Okay. An awful lot of people complain, and I think quite rightly, that while there are many wonderful Michelin restaurants, Michelin starred restaurants around the whole country, um, increasingly it's quite hard to find really good sort of proper French like bistro food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And they've even brought in a new label which shows that the food has actually been prepared in the restaurant and not just bought in from Metro, you know, the big cash and carry. And that same thing, I think, is definitely true of Switzerland. And there's one 
um, there's an event coming up which might interest you and, and uh, expats generally, and it's a Swiss-wide event during September. It's called uh, the Genus Woche, or the Semaine du Goût in French, the, the Week of Taste. Okay. And this is an idea actually that came originally from France. And the idea is that it's a, it's a kind of riposte to industrialized food. Uh, and and boring food, yeah. <laughs> food that's not rooted anywhere, and it's it's got a very local focus, and there's loads of stuff going on in Basel in conjunction with this. This okay. is what we talked about last night at the English show, um, and it it involves um, producers and bakers and winemakers and every all kinds of people who are in the food and wine world, bringing their stuff to a, to the public. And there will be bakeries, for instance, where you can go and spend the night, uh, watch them doing the, doing the bread. Or there's uh, a wine tasting and a visit to the cellars of Basel's urban winemaker, <laughs> super guy called Valentin Schies. He's at Vinigma, just behind the, the train station. I don't know whether you're aware of it oh, or okay. been there. No. Really interesting. Lovely wines, interesting uh, Venture, um, so that's one thing. There's food, there's wine, there's there's um, that that great cheese shop which is not too far from here. Yeah. Um, uh, is it called Viet? I think on on the street just near to Burgarten, you know that big uh, crossing. Anyway, um, that's one where he's doing cheese with sourdough, and I think there's a little microbrewery next door. So the, the the objective is to kind of get people in the door and show them. The, really the best of what's local. And there's this strong local Lockervor yeah. uh, thing going on. And I feel like maybe that's kind of a newer thing to Switzerland? Apparently, in the yeah, fairly new. Apparently, I, I only learned this yesterday. Um, it's been going since 2001, this, this week of taste. But I think it's gaining strength all the time. Um, okay. And it's, it's all over Switzerland. I, I'm, I'm focusing on the Basel events because that's... That's where we are, but um, there's stuff going on all over. It just seems like the 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 Swiss and a foodie culture don't kind of go hand in hand. They'd rather go hiking or skiing and they just have certainly. a sausage. And, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's it's they, they it's sustenance to yeah. them. They'd rather be out doing things, enjoying, mm. as we mentioned, the beautiful scenery, mm. stopping in for a mm. sausage or schnitzel, and going mm. back out and seeing more mountains mm. or yeah. skiing. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. I, uh, two things on that. I think there are definitely some places, and Zermatt is one that comes to mind, where even for skiers, even for skiers, <laughs> where part of the whole experience is really fun places up on the mountain where you can yeah. get really good food. Not, not, not starry Michelin stuff, but just really good right. local sausages, beautifully done, probably a really decent rösti. Um <laughs> And then the other thing I think to say is that I think it is true that the French-speaking and the Italian-speaking parts have more of what the French would call a culture de la table, a real food culture, if you like, food yeah. and wine culture. And then they're, they're, they're very relaxed about food and wine, much more so than in the German-speaking part. I think the German-speaking part is less less laid back about food and wine i mean it's awfully rare in around here that anybody would let's say have a glass of wine at lunch mm-hmm. if you go to the valley <laughs> definitely get a glass of wine for lunch <laughs> just a small example but um, so i think depending on where you are that does vary quite a bit yeah yeah that's very interesting and and it just you know it seems like uh 
uh, in that the, the French areas, the Italian areas, especially I, I've, we've spent some time in the Ticino area. Mm-hmm. Um, there is that, uh, like you say, that, that culture of food. But you, you brought up Zermatt, and you know there's a place in Zermatt that I love. It's called the Brown Cow Pub. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't know if you've been, no. but it's something like you were just talking about. It's it's not it's not Michelin star, but it's just a good place to go for a really good burger. Mm. You know, some local beers mm. or wine or whatever. But I don't see that much in Basel or in Zurich. Mm. You know, not a fast casual, not like a mm. not like one of those, but like a just a good local restaurant yeah. that you know you're always in the hunt for in the states yeah. i'm sure i'm not sure if it's like that in the uk um mm, but you know yeah, a really those, good those pub, kind of a really yeah, good pub just a in, pub or just yeah. like a a casual restaurant that has really good food right yes, you know yes. you don't want to get dressed up and fancy but mm. it, it seems to be missing a little bit i think there is a bit area. of a hole in the middle there i think you're right the, the, there's there's some perfectly good cafes and, and sort of you know bistro places where you can get something perfectly fine, and then at the top end, as we as you've already said, there's sure. just loads of stuff. It's that sort of hole in the middle where you can get fun, interesting, hopefully local, locally inspired yeah. food that's not going to cost an arm and a leg. Um, that's right. of course it's difficult in Switzerland because you know everything is expensive. Their real estate is expensive. Their staff. Sure. Are terribly expensive, so you know that's inevitably reflected in the in the prices in the restaurants. Is it just that maybe the restaurant business isn't a good idea to get into? No, I think that's probably true for anybody. (laughs) Well, yeah, but more so in Switzerland. You wouldn't believe how often I've been asked, "Oh, wouldn't you like to open a restaurant?" I always go, "Not absolutely." (laughs) I think in my worst dreams that would be something I would do. It sounds horrible, right? It sounds horrible. The hours are terrible. Yeah. Uh, it's a business, and I think a lot of people who go into the restaurant business don't realize that it's, well, it's got to be a business, otherwise they go bust, and an awful lot do. Right. Um, and, and it's no good just being, you know, oh, I love to cook, and I love people. Well, yes, but <laughs> just invite them <laughs> for dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not well, now so much these, these chefs are being, uh, you know, idolized, and they're being, you oh, know, yes. they're, they're, they're famous, and they're stars oh, because they're chefs, but... That's like the zero point zero zero one percenters, and just to get to that level, is most of them are slaving away in yeah. some miserable corner of the kitchen. You know, horrible hours, no family life. It's very tough, and the people who do it, you know, you have to take your hat off to them. I think it's amazing. It's like bakers. You know, they've got to be there at four in the morning. Yeah. Well, Susie can just never so, be. so yeah. that we can have lovely gipfeli and croissant for our breakfast, you know. What is the difference between a gipfeli and a croissant? Can you uh, break that down for the, me? The, the Switzerdeutsch word. The, the, it, it literally means the same. A gipfel is a is a crescent. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, and so it's just a translation. Okay. But, but th- around here we talk about a gipfeli, don't we? We do, but as far as taste-wise, there. I don't think there's any difference. Okay. What? What does vary is one bakery to another, that's for sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, the, the Swiss ones are made with Swiss butter and the French uh, ones are made well, with French Well, there's that butter. too. <laughs> Absolutely. And sometimes they're not made with butter. They're made with another, you know, margarine. Or... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, didn't yeah. know that was then possible. Then they'll say croissant pur beurre or butter gipfelé. Butter gipfelé is yeah. made, should be made with butter. They're the ones I always get. Cause should be made with obviously butter. Obviously, I like mm. butter. Yeah. Now, um, when I look through the titles of all of your books... You, it's so obvious that you love food. 
and you you could jump from Mexican to the taste of Alsace. You got fruits of the forest, honey from hive to honey pot. Uh, eat and two veg, a taste of Switzerland, which you mentioned already. You got cheese, slices of Swiss culture, as well as this wine one. Did I miss any? No, I don't think you got them. <laughs> so that that's a, a lot of different um, food and uh, kind of cultures or uh, sub subgroups. Um, is it just that you just can't get away from like that you love it so much? Or do you think, okay, I want to get involved in something different, so I'm going to think about fruits of the forest or honey well i think um going back to to our expat hook as we are today it's it's such a great advantage that i love to love to eat (laughs) but i also love to write about wherever i am and i've been lucky enough to live in some great places i mean france mexico switzerland spain you know there's loads to write about on both the food and the wine front and i know it's not nearly as easy for I, I'm, I guess I would be in the category of a trailing spouse since I have never been the primary breadwinner in our family um, but, it, but what I do I can do wherever I am if I had been trained as a doctor let's say that would have been much harder I'd have had to redo all my qualifications and uh, it's, it's, it's difficult but between my interests and the nice places that we've been and the languages that I love to speak and all that, I've been able to carry my my uh, career around in my rucksack, <laughs> which is a big advantage. Yeah, it it's really not, is. Not, every, not all expats are, are able to do that. It's interesting what you say about um, because you're a travelling spouse and you had the time and um, um, the, the you lived in areas that you could you could focus on these things. Did you was there ever a time where it was you know that you were looking? Like, is that how you got here? Because you were looking for something like, what am I going to do for myself? Or you were just like, it just naturally, of course I'm going to cook and write about it. <laughs> well, I got here because I was brought here, I have to be honest. But then having got here, then it was wonderful to find that there were, there were lots of things that I could do. And I started the workshops actually when we were in Mexico already. And there I used to, to give workshops on Mexican food to fellow expats, because of course there's a big expat community in Mexico City. And I also taught French cooking to Mexicans who loved it because, you know, this was something new for them. <laughs> so um, that, that was a fun experience. And then it was when I came back from Mexico to Europe that I started to do the, really get into the writing, both books and you mentioned articles as well. Well, the, the books seem pretty awesome. I am not a cook. I do not But you like to eat. I do love to eat. Well, I that's find, a good start. I find... Um, <laughs> cooking really difficult but when I speak to someone who loves cooking and who loves food the way that you do I feel inspired oh, good to cook <laughs> like I feel like I haven't even uh like read any of your recipes or anything like that but I feel like I want to go home and cook some Mexican mm. I want to open the Mexican cookbook that's and cook something be. that's what a, that's what a book or an article or a, or a recipe on my blog that's what they're about you know you want to get people in there and get excited and and really I think it's a great pity that cooking has become a kind of big deal and there's a whole generation of people and they can be male or female my kids are not amongst these ones because they both love to cook but they may be a bit unusual I don't know I guess they're your age Um, but I think there is a whole generation of people who find the whole idea of cooking very daunting Mm. complicated 
lengthy, time-consuming, all of those things. But actually, you know, you open a pack of pasta and, and um, chop up some little cherry tomatoes and some fresh basil, and you've got a fast food meal in about seven minutes. I mean, yeah. you know, you can't get much faster than that. So it's not, I think it isn't that f- cooking is time-consuming and lengthy and complicated. It's that people have this idea that that's what it is. Right. And, and, and if you never cook, then you kind of never get into it. You, you just sort of think, oh, that's not for me. I do think that it's, um, it's exactly what you say. Like, it's, it's daunting. And my fear of cooking and, and dislike of it comes from spending a lot of money and time and effort on something and then it being horrible. And then you're disappointed. And it's yeah. like, well, this is... was such a waste of time. It can really, like, knock yeah. your confidence to cook something. However, I had two successes recently oh, in the kitchen. <laughs> You are going to die when you hear this, Don. I cooked rice for the first time ever successfully, very recently. And you know what I did? I Googled how to make good rice. Well, there you are. And I followed it. Yeah. And I have never done that before. Because I always just put the rice in and put the water in without measuring anything. And Mm. then it was always... End up with a soggy heat. It was always a disaster. (laughs) And I cooked this rice and it was delicious. And I was like... And I didn't do anything fancy to it. I just cooked it right with the right ratios. And I was like, I can't believe I've been serving my family And it gave you a real buzz. Yeah. I know the feeling. Yeah. And then uh, last night... I cooked a salad, which, I mean, that's not cooking, but I did cook some meat with it, and it was delicious. Mm. But I've been avoiding salads all summer because I cooked one in in June, Mm. and uh, I made a salad in June, and it was awful. How can Mm. you mess up a salad? So it's taken me... (laughs) Like yeah. two and a half months to get to the point where it I'm like, okay, I'm ready to try off. a salad yeah. again. And we have got access, haven't we, to some pretty super ingredients. It doesn't matter whether you just go to a big supermarket or the market. Um, there are several markets, of course, in in our neighbourhood, whether it's Basel itself or Lerach has a wonderful market on... The Saturday one is especially good. There's one in Saint-Louis also on a Saturday. So all of which are you know easily reachable by public transport or bike or whatever. Um so, you know, the raw materials are there and you don't have to get complicated. I think that's maybe people are too, well, like we said, you know, they've got this idea in their heads that it's complicated and it's going to be very hard work and time consuming and end up in a disaster anyway. <laughs> I think you've got to stay simple. The yeah. best food, and this includes uh, at the very highest level, the best food is actually quite simple. You know, when you go to a really top restaurant, um, you'll find on the plate there may be three four at the very most ingredients but they're so cleverly put together and they're not messed about it's a bit like making a flower arrangement when you keep on jamming in more flowers it's never better it's, you spoil it <laughs> and i think that's the same with cooking that's it's very simple it's very true did you ever take any formal training with cooking or is it all just <laughs> no, natural skill no. well i don't know about natural skill but i do love it uh, no i never did a cordon bleu or any of those things yeah, that yeah. people do i i uh, yeah i just kind of got stuck in is it the process that you enjoy? Because that's that's mm. what I like about cooking is is the process of putting it all together. And I've learned, you know, it, hey, if it tastes like shit, okay, that's you know, just chalk it up. You move on and you do another one, another day. Another one. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but is it is it the process you enjoy? What what is the the I do, real? I do enjoy the process absolutely. And I tell you what, I really enjoy just looking in the fridge and seeing what is there. 
kind of in, kind of you know yeah the end of the week or whatever um, before I go shopping and I think okay right well we've got a a little bit of um, beetroot here and we've got some cherry tomatoes and we've got some uh, Greek yogurt and so let's make a iced soup from those things and you don't even <laughs> need to cook it. <laughs> uh, I love doing it or, or you know mostly I, I'm, I'm very keen on quiche. There was a big thing, do you remember, I don't know whether it was the same in Australia, but there was a thing about real men don't eat quiche. <laughs> well, my real man definitely eats quiche and he loves it. And, you know, if you've got one of those rounds of pastry that you get from any supermarket already rolled out and you've got eggs and you've got maybe a bit of cream and then something left over, it could be some vegetables that you've cooked, some mushrooms, whatever, put it all together and then you've got a quiche. It's brilliant. Oh, easy. Oh. Man, that's... Mm. That's the next level stuff. I just, <laughs> yeah, there are certain things you can yeah. kind of mess about with, but yeah, it's a great way of using up. Things. All right, I got to end on this question, um, unless you have any more, Susie. Okay, I got to end on this question. Maybe two. Uh, the best thing or meal you've ever eaten, or we could go this route, say you somehow some guy comes up to you and is like, look, I put a spell on you tomorrow you lose your taste buds mm. what's going to be your what's going to be the last thing before those taste buds go mm. away Got so it. either either favorite <laughs> meal of all time or favorite food or favorite wine <laughs> yeah wine <laughs> everything mm. what what is what is the top of the of the uh of the Sioux style uh, <laughs> menu or favorite food you know one of the greatest memories food memories i think i i have is when we were living in Mexico, um, you know the sauce called mole, M-O-L-E. Yes. Spelt like mole, from which guaca, mole, comes, which is sauce made from avocados. Well, mole is a, is a very complex and, and absolutely wonderful sauce which can be made with a, a number of different ingredients. And there are green moles made with uh, tomatillos, uh, tomate verde, um, green tomato, Mexican green tomatoes, and a bunch of other stuff. And then there's the dark moles, which are made of lots of different dried chilies. And there was this wonderful place in Cuernavaca, which is outside of Mexico City, about an hour and a half away. Beautiful place. And there was a, it was like a shack by the side of the road. And there were these wonderful ladies, and they would cook this mole verde, this green mole. And the sauce probably had been cooking for two and a half days. <laughs> and you could have it with pork or you could have it with chicken. And I still remember that flavor because the, it's a wonderful combination of these green tomatoes. But then it's got um, pumpkin seeds, toasted pumpkin seeds. It's got chili, of course. It's got a whole bunch of stuff. And it's just got a wonderful flavor. <laughs> you ever tried to recreate it? I have. And I've been fairly successful although you never quite kind of resurrect yeah. it do you but i actually have these green tomatoes growing in my garden okay because they seed themselves every year i don't know if you're familiar with tomate verde these tomatillos but if you open them up it's an, a complete seed bomb okay. inside there it's absolutely full of seeds so at the end of the autumn actually they just drop to the ground and then sort of quite slowly they just explode and deliver <laughs> seeds all over the garden. So every year I get them again. <laughs> so that was one wonderful memory. And I mean, of course, there have been some absolutely beautiful, what you might call rather elevated meals. But actually, more and more, I get away from those very 
fancy schmancy meals and I tell you what to me is a total nightmare I know we're meant to be talking about things that were wonderful but that's okay no that's um, good too are those tasting menus oh <laughs> and they just go on and on and you get anything between 12 and 20 different dishes you can't remember a thing that you ate at the right. end unless you're writing which I usually do and have to note it down you get total gastronomic amnesia and and it's just a sort of oh and each time the guy comes or the or the girl depending on the waiter or waitress comes and recites this this litany you know you are now going to have uh, a small piece of coquille saint jacques which was ray or fished by somebody in Brittany, <laughs> and the sauce is from saffron from the village of munt and you think oh god and you've lost the will to live by the yeah <laughs> yeah so I, I they were fun when they all started those things i actually love tapas Mm. Tapas I, I, I really love and there's a very favourite place um, in, in, on the Costa Brava we go there quite often because our kids live there well, one in Barcelona and one nearby and there's a great place called Compartir which means to share and they have these wonderful sharing plates and the chefs are, are just great and uh, it's a brilliant place It's funny you bring that up because I grew up in an Italian American household and coming to Europe, I was very excited to go to Italy and eat my way through Italy. But when we've been in Spain, and eating in Spain has been a much more enjoyable experience because and of the that's tapas. that's new too, I tell you, because I lived, as I said, in Madrid straight after school. So we're talking late 60s. Franco was still in power. Oh, going back quite a bit. And at that time, um, Spanish food was basically grilled meat, meat from the rotisserie, rotisserie rather over grilled yeah. um, lamb or pork or whatever um, and very overcooked and soggy vegetables swimming in olive oil now I mean I think Spain is one of the most exciting places to eat now it's, nowadays it's, and it's so fun and, and the experience of sitting there it's mm. not like you described if some mm. you know waiter or waitress comes up sort and, of pompous meal right right it's just all this shareable stuff there's good wine on the table good mm. olive oil good seafood good meat good breads like it's just it's very, very enjoyable. It's great. It's very convivial, isn't it? That business of, yeah. of, of, of sort of... They, they have a lovely expression in Spanish, which is pica pica, where you just sort of, you know, have a little bit of this and a little yeah. bit of that. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. All right. Mm. Before this turns into a five-hour interview, uh, <laughs> tell people how to uh, find out more about your books or anything you're doing or just... Find out, how do we find out more about Sue Style? Okay, well, first of all, I've got a website, so very easy, suestyle.com. Okay. And there I try and post something, uh, maybe it's, um, right now there's something about wild mushrooms, because there's loads of wild mushrooms in the forests and in the fields. Uh, it could be about a wine I've recently enjoyed or okay. a tasting I've been to, so there's, there's new stuff coming in. Um, that's one one place, and then of course um, Bergley Books, uh, their site bergley.ch. Um, there you'll find um, things about my books, um, and you can order directly from the site, or they're 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 on Amazon, on .co.uk, on .com, and on .de and .f. All of them, yeah. All right. Which is um, quite so it's quite readily accessible. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. I mm. am now going to go eat lunch. I'm starving. Uh, but thanks for joining Swiss Pats. We it appreciate was, it. It was my pleasure. Great to meet you. Good
Thank you, Sue, for that awesome interview. Now, before we get to our next news story, I just want to give a quick shout out to a Shropshire lad in Switzerland, the Facebook page that you should follow if you want your uh, Swiss news in English, as well as, you know, general discussion about what's happening um, all around Switzerland. It's not uh, set to a certain area, so it doesn't matter where you are in Switzerland, you should follow a Shropshire lad in Switzerland Facebook page. And for our non British listeners who are not sure what Schwabshire is or is supposed to be spelt. It is a county in England and it's spelt S-H-R-O-P-S-H-I-R-E. Schwabshire. Go on, Don, say it. Schwabshire. Oh, you're getting better at every Tip-top. week. Tip top. You Every week you get better at that. It's only been two years. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so thank you, Jonathan. We get a lot of our news from him. Um, and I have, an, I have a new story. I have one that um, I was even, um, you know, I got the urge to make a comment on. You know, I don't re- – I rarely will – Internet like, commenter. Like oh, look socially, at you. Like social media comment. But this one this one got, got a comment. You got triggered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this story is about dash cams. Now, Don. Yes. Dash cams. This raises a whole bunch of questions for me, and I'm not sure we're going to have enough time to cover them all. Okay. Because I am triggered. I am <laughs> so triggered. So dash cams in Switzerland are not legal. Could be wrong about it, the, the legality of them, but they're not um, items that can be used uh, to reduce your insurance payments. They can't be used um, to, um, to, to fight against someone who did something to your car. Or something that happened in front of you. And it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Do you want to know the reason? I do. Now, I uh, this is where I feel a thousand years old. I was unaware that people really did this. I know there's like... What, use dash cams? I knew there was like a lot of videos of like in Russia that people have dash cams. But I, I didn't know this was kind of a thing. But it makes sense. Like if you're having a dash cam running and you're involved in some sort of accident... Yeah. And it's not your fault and they say it was your fault. Well, you could be like, you, "No, you look at this. Proof. You're a jackass. Look what you did." So I get it. I see I see why they're using them now. So, I mean, I know that they you can use them in the UK. I know that you can use them in Australia. Uh I assume you can use them in America. Yes, um, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, obviously you can use them in Russia. <laughs> you can definitely use them in Russia. Uh, you can go to YouTube and watch hours and hours and hours of dashcam videos and I have, and <laughs> some are awful and some are funny. And but I, I, my favorite ones are the Australian ones because if they've got voice recording as well, <laughs> hearing people like react to accidents in front of them yeah. or react to being hit is quite funny. The the most famous one I know of is when that meteor hit. Uh, oh, in, in America? No, in Russia. Oh was, yeah, and it was caught on a bunch of people's. Yeah, that's when yeah. I was like, oh okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can use it for that, but also for for car accidents. (laughs) But basically, so in Switzerland, I already knew this, that the law in Switzerland was that you cannot use dash cams to fight against um, someone hitting you or uh, to give to the police as evidence or to give to your insurance because the uh, law here states that your privacy, uh, you know, you, you don't, you're basically not asking permission for, from the people around you being filmed. And that, okay. that supersedes your right to record and use it as evidence. So that was already the case. That has been the case for years in Switzerland. But recently, um, a, a case went to court 
to see whether that could basically whether you could use evidence from dash cam in in uh, to protect yourself or sure. to protect uh, your your vehicle. And the judges have ruled that no, you can't. You cannot use it uh, dash cam footage because your right to privacy overrides your right to prove. Uh, you know yourself innocent in a in a case of uh, being hit or something like that i think it's ridiculous um the swiss obviously think differently the swiss obviously take their privacy laws extremely seriously um i get it i get the whole privacy side of thing but i mean how does that jive with the fact that so when you get caught for speeding in the states i don't know how this is in in australia or the uk you are literally driving and a policeman is in his car, clocks you and pulls you over. Here, if you're speeding, you just get a letter in the mail three weeks later saying you were speeding. Here's a photo of you speeding. So Don's had that. <laughs> I've had that. You're speaking from experience. Yes. So how is that? Well, they're allowed to. They're the police. They can do what they want. They can film you, but you can't film them. The police also but don't I have also, body cams here. They don't. No. But I also can't. But then I also can't film you doing something stupid on the road that causes damage to my car. Right. Right. Exactly. Which is ridiculous. At least let me set like, okay, fine. At least let me send that to my insurance company to say, right. look at this idiot driver. Look mm-hmm. what they did. Yep. They caused they this can't damage. Use it. They will not use it. Not they're even not, the insurance company. They're, not, they're not legally allowed to. That's what this case has decided, that they're not allowed to use it. It does say that it's unless it's for much more serious um, offenses. So the law in Switzerland, this is what, what I wanted to mention, is very weird when it comes to dash camps. So that's why I said they're, they're not legal, but then I was a little bit iffy about it. Okay. So they're not illegal. You can use a dash cam. I know this because I researched it because I have a dash cam. <laughs> um, you can use dash cams, but you are not allowed to use it for any reason except personal reasons. So I cannot put any of the images that I have on my dash cam on YouTube, which is what a lot of people do. So okay. if, they, if they film an accident or something funny, they might put it on YouTube to get lots of views. I'm not allowed to do that in Switzerland, which I don't anyway. So it's right. not a problem. Um, so you're only allowed to use it for your own personal pleasure, I guess. So if I wanted to use my dash cam footage and sit on my TV, hook it up to my TV and watch it, I'm allowed to Worst do that. Worst party ever. Yes, yeah. Um, but I'm not allowed to put it out there to the world. I'm not allowed to give it to my insurance company. I'm not allowed to use it as, as uh, evidence if something happens. Unless I'm guessing it, unless it's serious. It says it has to be serious enough, but it doesn't qualify what is serious enough. Well, I'm guessing like if your dash cam records someone shooting someone else, perhaps that's... Perhaps, but they're saying... Seems serious to but me. But they're saying that it, it violates data collection laws if you use a dash cam. So um, I don't know. I, I think this is ridiculous. I think that it's... I mean, I think it's dumb that in, in Australia and in the UK, definitely for the UK... If you have a dash cam, your insurance rates go down because they make an assumption that if you spend money on a dash cam, that you're a safer driver. Oh, okay. So your insurance rates are slightly lower. I don't know by how much or whether it's worth it, but they do. They they are they are a slightly lower. Um, I'm not sure about in Australia, but that 
that is one one way that they utilize having a dash cam because you're not going to incriminate yourself are you you're not gonna be like hey i caused an accident here's the dash cam footage (laughs) i did it myself um but i don't know i just think it's i think it's really dumb i think it's this is one of the laws in switzerland that has me scratching my head and i don't think it's smart i understand what they're saying up to the point of okay you can't go out and drive around and then go run to youtube and post that online okay fine maybe that violates some privacy laws However, you get to the point where if you're out driving around and you are in an accident that's caused by someone, you have that recording. Mm-hmm. To me, that's where they sh- – this is just common sense. Yeah. Then they should be like, oh, well, yeah, because this just clears it up, makes less work for us. Imagine if you had – imagine you saw an accident in front of you and you took that, in, that, that footage to the police and so they know – they know because they yeah. see it and they went we can't use this <laughs> i mean it's ridiculous I, I i it really it really drives me crazy um i think that it's i think it's dumb when you think about the privacy or data collection laws when you walk around you're seeing what you see on a dash cam what's the difference i don't know i don't i'm not smart enough to know that but it doesn't seem much different to me i mean I understand if if you're posting something on social media without someone's consent. I mean, like we have to sign something at kids' school, like, hey, if we're going to post photos or, you know, Maria does this acro ballet class where they don't want any photos taken. I understand that. Like, I get that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I even get to the point, like I said, where if you're not just posting uh, dash cam footage on the internet just of your daily Sunday drive, but if you have something that is going to help the process of either the judicial system or the uh, insurance claims. Like, why not? It's just going to make life easier for everyone. Yeah. Well, the, the problem with a lot of these reports, these news reports that you read, is that the information is so minimum. I mean, I'd probably have to call someone and be like, can you explain this to me a little more to find out when they would use it? At what point would they, you know, would they say that is serious enough? That is not serious enough. Is, you know, is a car accident that causes no injuries, um, but, but shows a clear, um, offender. Mm -hmm. Is that a, you know, is that enough? Like for instance, I wanted to mention, you know, the Teslas, they, they have multiple cameras. And in America at the moment, um, the Teslas, a lot of people damage them on purpose. I don't know why people are like angry about cars being environmentally friendly (laughs) or jealous or I'm not sure what, but people scratch them. But the the good news is is that the Teslas, especially some of the more uh, recent ones, have a really high level of cameras around them and and film as soon as someone comes close. So there is footage of people scratching cars and then being caught for it. Now, does that is that not legal here in Switzerland? If someone scratches my brand new car and causes 6,000 francs in damage, is that serious enough? Or no one was hurt mm. and no one witnessed it, just the cameras witnessed it. Will the police use it? Who knows? They don't say whether it, that's serious enough. Yeah. So very vague. That's what pisses me off about it. Yeah. Like, you know, you could you could spend a lot of money on something, a dash cam, a Tesla, and 
and and it and it has no benefit. Luckily for me, mine was fifty francs, so it's not a big deal. Your Tesla? Uh, I wish I had a Tesla for fifty francs, <laughs> but no, my my dash cam. It, honestly, I've never used my dash cam. It's it records every time I use my car, but I've never ever looked at it because as soon as I got my dash cam, I did the research and found out that it was basically pointless. Mm, after so, you bought the dash cam? Well, yeah, always wanted one, so <laughs> did it, got it, yeah. Well, that does it for a, another edition of Swiss Pats. You Thank got you. got me all nice and riled up, Don. I did. Thank you for uh, sticking with us. Uh, it's been kind of a quiet October because, well, we were, Susie was in Iceland. I was in Egypt. Things are happening. Um, but we're going to get back at it. I'm uh, very excited. Fall's coming. Harps Mesa, all kind of good stuff. So, um let us know, uh, you know, hit us up on social media channels. You could find us everywhere, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, SwissPats.com. Download us, leave comments. Um, so let us know what you like, what you want to hear, uh, even what you don't like. Yeah. Even that part. Well, let Don know what you don't like. Don't let me know. Okay. Susie Earmuffs. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot for uh, joining us, and we'll talk to you next week. See ya. Yummy folk, they're eastin' off and said,